Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. Or check out SubChina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On August 14th of last year, the CGTN anchor Cheng Lei, an Australian citizen, was detained in Beijing and placed in what is called residential surveillance. Six months later, in February of this year, she was formally arrested and charged on suspicion of illegally supplying state secrets overseas, according to the Australian Foreign Minister, Marisa Payne. Her case has raised many questions, leading some to suspect that this may be an instance of hostage diplomacy, like the well-known cases of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two Canadians detained and then arrested as a response to the arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. The detention of Cheng Lei took place during uh, and likely contributed to the precipitous downward slide in relations between China and Australia. It also prompted Two Australian journalists, Bill Bertels and Michael Smith, to leave China quite abruptly in September. Joining me today to talk about Cheng Lei's case and its broader context are three guests, one of whom is the above-mentioned Bill Bertels, correspondent for ABC, who was, as I've said, in Beijing until fairly recently and joins us from Australia. Bill, welcome to Seneca. Thanks, Kaiser, for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you. Also joining me is Lucy Hornby, who's been on our program several times before. Lucy is currently with the Harvard Fairbanks Center uh, in Cambridge and was formerly a Beijing correspondent for the Financial Times. Lucy, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Kaiser. Nice to be back. And finally, we're also joined by Donald Clark, professor of law at the George Washington University and a well-known specialist in Chinese law. Don, great to finally have you on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here, Kaiser. Well, before we get started, I should add that I do know Cheng Lei personally, though I wouldn't describe us as close. I was really shocked, I think, as you all probably were by her detention. Uh, she's somebody that I knew in Beijing and in more recent years would see her pretty routinely at World Economic Forum events. Most of our conversations were, you know, about pretty quotidian things like parenting and the Beijing food scene and whatnot. But Lucy, you might know her much better. Uh, let, let's start with you. Who is Cheng Lei? And what kind of work was she doing for CGTN? Uh, what were her relationships with uh, the other journalists in, in Beijing like? What can you tell us about her? So uh, Cheng Lei was really a nice person. I would see her at reporting events, but I would also see her at weekend soccer practices. She's got two young kids. And, you know, as far as anybody could tell, her interests outside of work were very much the kids, and also she really enjoyed Beijing's dining scene. So she really liked going <laughs> so out. So same things as me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No wonder you knew her, Kaiser. Right. Um, but she really yeah. liked to go out to sort of fancy dinners. But, you know, other than that, it was really the kids, the kids, the kids. Um, we went on some reporting trips um, together, uh, so saw each other sometimes outside of Beijing. Um, but mostly we saw each other in Beijing in just a, a very kind of normal, everyday context, as you would expect for somebody who's a working mom. And how did you first hear about her detention? I was quite shocked to get a text message from somebody, actually, a Chinese journalist mm. who knew that we were friends. Yeah, yeah. What do we know, Lucy, Bill, about the, the circumstances or the ostensible reasons for her initial detention? I'm being very careful here not to speculate idly. Uh, was there any indication whatsoever given by Beijing as to what her detention was about or, or what triggered it? 
Yeah, to date, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry has confirmed that she's under investigation for state secrets. Uh, The uh, precise wording in the uh, official formal arrest notice that was uh, granted at the six-month mark of her detention uh, was she's suspected of uh, supplying or intending to supply intelligence or state secrets to a foreign organisation or individual. So it's very broad, but that's the nature of the investigation. Hmm. That just seems so so far-fetched to me. It certainly does, because, I mean, the interactions that any of us had with her, she didn't seem to be somebody who was meddling in anything of that nature. Right, right, right. Don, what should we know about detention law in China? Uh, and did Cheng Lei's case deviate, to your knowledge, uh, from the way uh, that it was supposed to have been handled under Beijing's law? Well, my understanding is she was first detained in the middle of August 2020, and then she was put into this thing called residential surveillance at a designated location. And what that is, it's a type of investigative detention in which you can be placed in a detention facility, which is not a regular detention facility. It is just the police's own you know, guest house set up somewhere with bars on the windows and a big burly guy, you know, outside your door, um, mm. that can go for up to six months. And I noticed that, uh, you know, just uh, last month, February 5th, apparently, her, um, they announced that she was formally arrested. And that's an important um, stage in the Chinese criminal process, because arrest is a daibu, which is a formal stage. It doesn't mean just detained. Obviously, she's been detained since August. Um, But once arrest happens, that's supposed to mark the end of the um, period of residential surveillance in a designated location. So she is now she now should be out of that and in a regular detention facility. So if she's not, that's something very irregular. So now she's had this sort of formal arrest uh, and then another clock starts. What's that? Um, The clock that starts counting now is could go up for about seven months. And that would, wow. yes, <laughs> wow. And that could be for yet more investigation. You know, the criminal procedure law says, you know, you get a few months, but then if you want, you can get extended. And then if you want, you can get that further extended. Uh, the extensions require permission from higher and higher levels. And ultimately, um, you know, it could be extended forever as long as you got permission from, say, you know, the National People's Congress Standing Committee or something. But basically, you know, we're talking about uh, about seven months until they send it to the procuracy. So it's the procuracy that's the prosecuting organ. Once the police send them the case, it's basically a dossier, it's you know like a physical dossier of materials, then they get about one and a half months, again, subject to extensions if necessary, but the basic amount is one and a half months to decide whether to bring charges. And then after that, the court gets you know two months extendable to three months to have the trial and finish the trial. Now, it's important to notice those limits have not been observed, you know, in the Kovrig Spaver case, because we're told that the, you know, sort of the indictment happened in the Kovrig and Spaver case, I think, uh, certainly more than, I think it was back in June or something. Um, Mm -hmm, And and mm -hmm. so the trial should have been, you know, had and, and completed by now. 
So uh, uh, I'm wondering, though, in, in her, during the initial stages of her detention, uh, was she given the access that she's supposed to have to Australian consular officials or to legal counsel? Well, according uh, to the news reports I saw, she was given monthly visits um, to uh, from the Australi- Australian consular officials. Um, she is not uh, entitled to uh, uh, legal representation uh, at that point, I don't think. I mean, I, I, my recollection is Kovrig and Spavor uh, did not. Bill? Uh, yeah, yeah, just to jump in, yeah. So she's been given the monthly consular access visit. However, it's not a visit. It is a video call. This is a coronavirus measure. Uh, supposedly, China on one hand uh, talks uh, very correctly about how well it's contained coronavirus. On the other hand, it's always using it as an excuse, it seems, to deny in-person visits, uh, consular visits, for people like Chang Lei or the other Australian who's in jail in Beijing, Yang Hangjun. Uh, so mm-hmm. they're, they're video calls once a month. Uh, no legal access uh, for the first six months. Um, there has been an effort by her supporters and friends to organise legal representation, uh, but her lawyer has not been allowed to have any uh, formal contact with her or meet her. Whether or not this has changed since she was formally arrested, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. That was only in the last month or so. Um, sometimes we do see... Um, some difference of uh, access and and detention conditions when they do formally go into criminal detention. But certainly those first six months, uh, she was left to only write letters to her two children and to her uh, friends and family. Uh, And those letters, of course, went through a filter of um, the uh, security organs who who are detaining her. I think I should add something else that when you get these consular visits, you're not allowed to discuss your case. Oh, really? No. You can only discuss your physical state and your comfort, uh, the conditions of your detention. But you have no ability to express to anybody what you know you think you may or may not have done. You have no ability to defend yourself in any way or to get the word out in any way. Um, and the consular official has no ability to provide you any support. So you're really left completely on your own mm. uh, while this investigation, such as it is, goes on. Uh, And in her case, the other thing that has to be noted is that under the state secrets law, the government is under absolutely zero um, requirement to provide any evidence whatsoever to anybody, whether it's your lawyer, your consular official, or anybody else. Um, So whatever it is they claim that they are charging her with, no one outside the police has to see that evidence. I should add, once the case is um, transferred from the procuracy to the court, in other words, once they file the formal charge with the court, uh, at that point, they have to show their evidence to the lawyers, supposedly. Even in state secret cases, Don? I don't see any exception in the criminal procedure law. Um, That, of course, doesn't mean it will happen. What it does mean is we can then say China's not following its own law if it turns out that they don't give proper access. Right. Lucy, uh, so as you say, they were un- she was unable to discuss the actual details of her case with, during the consular visits, even though they were just video calls. Uh, what do we know about how Cheng Lei has been treated so far in detention? What uh, her physical condition has been? Well, it's varied a bit. Um, as you may know, when the Chinese have you in detention, they often insist that a person sit very straight and stare straight ahead for hours at a time. Uh In her case, she was getting back pains. She got some reprieve on that and was allowed to relax a bit 
And then that reprieve was taken away, Mm. um, again, without explanation. She's also had periods where she's had people in the room with her at all times uh, and other periods where people are not. She's had periods where she's been permitted uh, to read and other periods where she is not. Mm. So it seems very variable. And again, I'm, I'm not aware that people know why these conditions are changing. And, and Bill, do you know where her family is now and how they're doing? Are they back in Australia now? Yes. Yeah, so her family situation, um, it's a little bit complicated, but uh, she, so she's a single mother of two children. She's divorced from her uh, husband, who's a Chinese national. He's in China. But the two children are in Melbourne with her mother. Now, her parents are divorced as well. So her father, both mother and father, are actively involved, of course, in, in trying to help. Uh, but they're um, in different cities. He's in Perth. She's, uh, the mother's in Melbourne. Now, Chung Lei's mother is in her, well into her 70s. And so when I interviewed a representative of the family the other day, it was actually Chung Lei's niece, but they're quite similar in age. So, you know, they sort of had a bit more of a, I suppose you might say, sisterly relationship or maybe more like cousins. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was making the point that uh, Chung Lei has an 11-year-old daughter now, a 9-year-old son, and you have this grandmother in her 70s who is finding it pretty tough to be single-handedly looking after these two kids in Melbourne. There are obviously other family members who are helpful and supportive, um, but it's not an easy situation at all for the broader family. And these two kids, of course, are at an age where they are aware of what's going on, but maybe not completely understanding of of the circumstances. So, um, you know, I've had quite a few people get in touch with me to say, look, is there anything we can do to help the family? I'm not sure if there is, frankly, but um, there are a lot of people concerned about her welfare just because of how many people in the Australian community, business community, at some point knew her or were friends with her in China. Right, right. Bill, can you share with us uh, something about the circumstances surrounding your own decision to leave China uh, abruptly, as I've described, in September of last year? Were you able to glean anything at all about the Cheng Lei case, since ostensibly you were going to be questioned by Chinese law enforcement in connection with Cheng Lei? Yeah, so... um First thing, I'd just say I didn't decide to leave China. I did not want to leave. I had no choice in the matter. The Australian government were determined to evacuate me. Um, Now, the reason that the Chinese National Security Police turned up to my door at midnight and also the door of another Australian journalist, Mike Smith, was, in their words, because we were involved in Chung Lei's case. And they didn't Mm. give us many details at the door that night. Um, They just told us we have an exit ban and we can't leave because the Australians, they had word of this and so they were trying to get us out. They were obviously very worried we were going to be detained, but we weren't. The whole thing was very curious. But eventually, after a lot of toing and froing and diplomatic negotiations, uh, we did have to separately submit to these police interviews or interrogations uh, with the Chinese National Security Police. Mine was in a Beijing hotel room in the Zhaolong Hotel in Sanliton. Ah, I know it well. It's out of Renault. It used to be a bit of a dump, but it's now like a sort of mid-priced holiday inn. Um, anyway, now the interview, it was one of those classic, you know, Chinese cops sitting around, they've got a video camera filming me, just like what you see on TV quite often. And, um, there were a lot of sort of 101 get to know you questions, you know, what's your name? What's your passport number? Uh, How long have you been a journalist here? But then they eventually did move on to Chung Lei and they asked me a series of questions, things like, 
when did you first meet her? Who introduced you to her? Did she ever? Did you ever use electronic means to communicate with her about work issues? You know, there there was a series of questions which, in theory, if I knew Chung Lei a bit better and I worked clo- closely with her, you know, it may have been legitimate attempts to gather evidence. But because I wasn't really the best person to interrogate about her, I, I know her. I'd say I'm friends with her, but not very close. Um, I obviously didn't really have any answers which would be of any use to them. And they didn't really make that much effort to kind of follow up. It appeared to me that they knew from the outset that, especially Mike Smith, the other journalist who doesn't know her at all, they knew that this wasn't really a legitimate effort to uh, to get evidence for her case. And ultimately, we finished up the interview and off we went. Um, but unfortunately for me, of course, I asked questions to them. <laughs> you know, well, while you're at it, uh, what's this case about? And look, I don't know if the actual older Beijing cop who was given the task of interrogating me, I don't even know if he would have been privy to any information. It seemed to me like he'd been chosen to do this job simply because... Maybe he was good at it. You know, he had a bit of fun toying with the foreign journalists. But I didn't. I didn't learn anything new at all from from those forty five minutes. So these were public security officers. These were not Ministry of State security. Yeah. So at my door, there were so seven people turned up to my door at midnight. The first two were in your normal police uniforms. You know, the light blue mm-hmm. summer uniform. Um, and then behind them, there's five people in plain clothes. Now, they're all wearing coronavirus masks, but you know they look like they were the ones running the operation. Um, the guy at the door pulls out this shiny badge with the public security crest on it, and it said in both Chinese and English, Beijing National Security Bureau. And, you know, he's an old Beijing hmm. cop, um, you know, low Beijing accent and everything. <laughs> so I, I don't know whether – I didn't get the impression – and he was the one who ended up doing the interrogation. I didn't get the impression he was really the one sort of doing the, the broader investigation into Chung Lei. He didn't really seem like the type. It, it almost felt like him and, and the, the people next to him in the hotel room, their job was to kind of carry out this, this interview slash interrogation uh, they seemed to know from the outset that it wasn't going to garner any proper evidence, whereas the people actually pulling the strings and running the investigation into Chung Lei, I suspect they, you know, they were behind the scenes. Um, so Bill has observed that it was not actually public security, but uh, state security, according to the badge. Um, the, from from Be- from the Beijing level, you know, this is the state security bureaucracy, which you have at the central level, at the, the municipal level, and, and down below. Now, that's interesting. That was exactly the same people that, uh, in my understanding, um, um, detained and have been doing the investigation of Michael Kovrig. In other words, it was Beijing, not the central, and it was state security, not public security. Don, just in case our listeners aren't, aren't familiar with it, maybe you could explain the difference between state security and just good old public security. Sure. So these are two different uh, ministries at the central level. And, and typically, you know, local government divisions mimic what goes on at the central level. Um, right. And so at the central level, you have the Ministry of Public Security. And at the Beijing level, you have the Beijing Bureau of Public Security. And they do, you know, kind of normal police work. So at the municipal level, you know, they do traffic, they do investigations of murders and, and, and theft and, and things like that. Um, but parallel to them, uh, you have a Ministry of State Security. 
Um, right. and, and that's just a completely different ministry, although it is parallel to the Ministry of Public Security. And they also exist at the central level. There's a minister. They exist at the municipal level, you know, where there's a, you know, I don't know what you call it at the municipal level, just the head of Beijing um, state security. And they do things like these, you know, counterintelligence um, uh, operations. So their, their remit would be similar to that of the FBI, in a sense. Right, right, right. I was going to suggest that, that you might say uh, between police and FBI, yeah. although there isn't a national police function as Correct. there is in China. Mm. Right. Great. Thanks. That's very helpful. Just now, we've, we've made a couple of comparisons to the case of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Is this, do you think, Analogous to that, is there a, is this a form of hostage taking that's aimed at Canberra? Uh, and if it's not hostage taking, maybe her arrest can at least be seen alongside other non traditional tactics in in foreign policy, things like trade sanctions. Don, what do you think? Sure, I I think it's hard to say it's parallel to the Kovrig Spaver cases because I think. The Kovrig-Spaver cases are pretty clearly a hostage taking in the sense that, you know, it's pretty clear what Canada has to do to get them free. Uh, you know, they've China has, of course, been hinting without actually saying so because they don't want to say this is a hostage taking. But they have made it through their various representatives pretty clear that these cases are connected. Whereas in in, in the case of Chengle, it's hard to see a specific thing that China is telling Australia, do this and then we'll let her go. Um, It could, on the other hand, you know, be a sign of, you know, this deterioration in relations. And, and, and possibly it's the kind of thing where someone lower down in the bureaucracy takes some action and then those uh, higher up, uh, you know, are kind of stuck with it and they can't do anything to, to, to reverse it. Bill, I know you wanted to say something, but let me get, get to Lucy here. Just, um, so Beijing, of course, Lucy has has denied that there's any connection between Chengle's detention and the the decline in in the relationship between Australia and China. But is there more than just the circumstantial evidence that this is, in fact, what Chengle's detention and arrest is ultimately about? Well, I think there's two things that um, are noteworthy. Uh, One is that the Global Times, which is well-known sort of nationalist tabloid, we often call it, uh, it's not an official organ of the party per se, but they often use it to kind of float ideas. Uh, anyway, shortly after uh, Cheng Lei's detention, the Global Times revealed that Australia had expelled some journalists, Chinese journalists from Australia, and it certainly implied that there was a connection there. Uh, whether that's official or not, we don't know. The second thing that makes people see a connection to the international situation is the fact that Cheng Lei is actually a naturalized Australian citizen. She moved to Australia when she was about eight years old. Uh, Her family is from Hunan in China. And in other cases where you have um, Chinese-born people of foreign citizenship, when they're detained, say, in business disputes or, you know, situations like that, um, there's often an effort to deny them uh, foreign representation or to not recognize that foreign citizenship. And that was not at all the case in Cheng Lei's case. Um, she was immediately recognized as an Australian citizen. And um, the consular protocols were immediately uh, and precisely followed to the letter. So, you know, that's quite different from cases that we've covered in the past of, you know, Chinese-born people of foreign citizenship. Um, and it, it certainly implies that she is being deliberately treated as an Australian, which, of course, she is. Um, but it's a bit different from you know, cases that we've covered of business disputes. So this kind of, 
implies that whatever the reason is that she's been brought in, and I want to emphasize here that even her best friends can only speculate. Like, nobody has a clear idea what she could possibly have done. But whatever it is, it was unlikely to have been any sort of business dispute um, because they immediately treated her as an Australian. <laughs> That's interesting. Bill, Lucy just mentioned the expulsion, ultimately, of, of a couple of journalists uh, who were from China. Uh, in, in late June of last year, ASIO, uh, the Australian uh, security intelligence organization, raided the homes of four Chinese journalists working in Australia for, for Chinese state-run media outlets, including things like China Radio International, you know, that those known den of, of, of spies, right? Uh, can, you, can you talk about what they were alleged to have done and what happened to those, those four journalists? Yeah, so in late June, the Australian security uh, organisation, ASIO, raided the homes of four Chinese state journalists living in Sydney. They were dawn raids, and they seized... We, we don't know exactly. This is from an account by uh, the Xinhua News Agency, China's state media, um, but the journalists themselves say that ASIO officers seized their electronic devices, uh, including things like their kids' iPads, took them away. The four journalists were not detained, but in the days or weeks after this happened, and it was not publicised at all, uh, the Chinese embassy in Australia ordered all four of them to get on planes during the pandemic and get back to China. They did not want any risk of these four being further embroiled in an anti-foreign interference case. And so on that same day when ASIO were raiding those journalists, other officers were also raiding the home of a local uh, Sydney politician and his political advisor, a man named John Jung. And ultimately, that is the investigation. It's an anti-foreign interference uh, investigation. Primarily, it appears, into John Jung. He's, uh, he's, he's lawyered up and he's going to fight it, so he obviously feels that um, he has a strong case. Uh, somewhat worrying, I would say, is that to date, uh, we still don't have much in the way of transparency from either ASIO or from the Australian government departments that oversee it. Uh, to justify this uh, pretty pretty intense uh, operation to you know arrest uh, to, well to carry out multiple raids and so forth so uh, there's a bit of a debate uh, in Australia not well, among the sort of niche Australia China watching community about whether or not ASIO should have raided these Chinese state journos because of course it was always going to result in retaliation in China which it ultimately did. My view on it is we just don't know uh, how legitimate, how much merit the investigation and those raids uh, have uh, because we're not getting the transparency from the Australian end that we, we need to have. Bill and, and Lucy, maybe we could uh, work a little bit on getting this timeline down because uh, it's important to know the order in which things happen. Chung Lei's detention happened after, for example, the Morrison government started pushing for investigations into COVID origins, but it was before... Uh, China slapped sanctions on beef and barley and then later on on wine. Uh, is that correct? And, and so maybe we could quickly sketch the timeline of the, the precipitous decline and, and where Cheng Lei's uh, detention fits into all of that. Yeah, it was 
How does where does it start? Uh, it, it would pretty Chengle's detention pretty much happened after most of uh, those issues. The Australians calling for a coronavirus inquiry. Uh, the trade strikes by China on Australian mm-hmm. exports had already commenced by that point. However, they continued even after she was arrested, and for many months more. Uh, from time to time, the Commerce Ministry would ban other exports. So that was an ongoing thing that predated her arrest and continued after her detention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, it's probably worth noting that China has been intermittently blocking Australian exports in a variety of commodities for about two or three years now. Right. So what uh, are so some of these? The relationship has deteriorated over the past, I don't know, three or four years. Uh, but then this summer, it really seemed to hit a low point. Yeah, yeah. Lucy, there was another individual, a, a Chinese woman named Hayes Fan, who worked uh, technically as a, a news assistant uh, at Bloomberg. She was a good friend of Cheng Lei's, like I said, a Chinese citizen. She was also detained in December 2020. Is there any reason to believe that her detention had anything to do with Cheng Lei's case? Yeah, that was a big shock as well. Um, I worked alongside Hayes for many years at Reuters, uh, where she worked uh, on the TV department for Reuters. She went to Bloomberg in, I think, 2017. She was extremely highly regarded among the um, foreign correspondents, as well as among the Chinese journalistic community, for her professionalism. Uh, She was very good, very uh, tendacious person when it came to chasing the news. And she was very good at getting interviews with, you know, key Chinese players, whether they be entrepreneurs, policymakers. You know, she was just a very strong, very professional co-worker. People enjoyed working with her, and they really appreciated the quality of the work she did. The reason people think that there may be a connection is that uh, Hayes and Cheng Li were very good friends. They really enjoyed going out to dinner together. Um, they were, you know, it was well known that they were good friends. Um, no, no, nothing, nothing sinister about that, of course. But when Hayes was also disappeared, uh, people immediately leapt to the idea that there must be a connection. Now, keep in mind, both women have now been held for some time. Uh, without specific charges or without specific information as to what might have triggered their detentions. Don, maybe this is a good point to ask you about this. Uh, is there a difference between Chinese citizens' rights and foreign citizens under detention laws in China? No. Are they basically the same? No, yeah. no difference at all. The only difference is that okay. foreigners have this right to consular, you know, consular visits, whereas Chinese don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, otherwise it'd be extraterritoriality, essentially. But... Um, so translation, though, is that while Cheng Lei has the comfort of having at least one external visit per month, Hayes is not uh, authorized or guaranteed any legal or familial visit at all. Correct, And Tom? we have no idea what, what where she is or, or there's been no word at all about where Hayes is, right? Lucy, is that correct? Uh, correct. No, no one. No, again, it's all speculation, but there's there's no indication. Yes, and I think it's, you know, clear that, you know, when they... Detaining authorities know that someone is going to be looking at the detainee once a month, uh, even if they can't specifically ask questions about the treatment. That you know has got to have a constraining effect on what they do. Um, whereas uh, you know Hayes fan, you know when you look at what people like uh, Gao Zhisheng, you know the uh, lawyer who has disappeared, mm-hmm. his reports of you know the threats they made to him we can make you disappear forever no one will ever know you know they can make threats like that to Hayes fan they can't really credibly make threats like that to Chung Lei right 
Well, Chiang Lai isn't the first CCTV or CGTN uh, newscaster to run afoul of Beijing. Uh, Rui Chenggang was de- detained about seven years ago in July 2014 uh, and subsequently indicted for corruption and sentenced to, I believe it was like six years. Are there any similarities at all in this in these cases, Don? Uh, these are both kind of conspicuously Western-facing reporters, both very cosmopolitan, uh, both English speakers, very you know, arrested, obviously, for ostensibly very different reasons. Um, but is there anything that, that, that ties them? I can't really see anything that ties them, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems, in Chung Lei's case, uh, it seems very unlikely that it's about, you know, corruption, whereas um, right. in Ray Chung Gang's case, very possibly. And Bill, what is Canberra trying to do right now? What what leverage do they have at all uh, in trying to address the Chiang Lai situation? Well, not a great deal of leverage, but as the discussion about um, Hayes Fan indicated, uh, this has gone from, I think many people here are assuming it was hostage diplomacy in response to the ASIO raids, to actually being something right. a bit more complicated, that um, Hayes Fan's arrest uh, kind of complicates that and makes it look like it's not a clear-cut case of simple hostage diplomacy at all. Uh, so for that reason, uh, I, I think the attitude in Canberra is uh, you do what you can, uh, you, you make representations, obviously all the consular access you're allowed, but... There's a limit uh, to what you could do. And, of course, what they argue at the moment is that because uh, the relationship between Australia and China is not particularly good, there are fewer back channels for the Australian side to go through to try and uh, lobby or advocate for Chung Lei. Right. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, because she was quite uh, well known in the business community, um, you have had some fairly prominent figures from the Australian business uh, groups going to, say, the Chinese embassy in Australia specifically to raise concerns about her case. So there are people mm-hmm. not just in government, but in, in, you know, people who have friendly relationships, business relationships with China for many years, who are going out of their way to try and express concerns. Aside from that, though, in terms of leverage, there's not much in the way of leverage that Australia can really exercise. And apparently there's all, not, not, not a ton of interest in the Australian public in, in trying to get her freed. Uh, this is something that I want to talk about. I mean, we're all aware, uh, Lucy flicked it earlier, of the way that Beijing doesn't always draw a clear line between ethnicity and nationality and often treats naturalized citizens of other countries who are born in China differently than, than they would foreign citizens or, or, or nationals who aren't of Chinese ethnicity. Uh, I think it's, it's, you know, it's encouraging in, in, in one respect uh, that Chung Lei's ethnicity doesn't seem to have been a factor in her detention, and that you know they recognized her as, as Lucy said, as Australian right away. Uh, but speaking of Chung Lei's ethnicity, I, I've been really disheartened to see some of the comments online in Australia responding to her case. Uh, this is something that Lucy alerted to me in conversations we had prior prior to this this interview. Uh, let's talk about, for example, the op-ed that Clive Hamilton wrote. Uh, Clive Hamilton is the controversial academic who probably more than any other individual has raised concerns, his detractors would say he's drummed up unfounded fears over Chinese influence in Australia. Uh, after Chung Lei's detention, he wrote an op-ed about her her, her situation in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, talking about the unwillingness of many Australians to come to her defense. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs from that. I mean, it's really striking. He writes, 
Chung has for many years worked in Beijing for the CCP's propaganda apparatus. One Twitter user put it like this, born in China, lives in China, works for Chinese government broadcaster. What exactly makes Chung Lei an Australian journalist? Yes, repeating this will outrage some, but that's how many in the community see her. She hasn't earned their support. Some will see the lack of courage as further proof of Australians' innate racism, but I don't think it is. If Beijing had arrested much-loved Australian Benjamin Law or Kylie Kwong or Jenny Key, there would be a great outcry and intense pressure to do something. And when Sydney academic Feng Chongyi was detained in China while researching human rights abuses, his many friends in the academic world fired up and applied relentless pressure on the government. So Hamilton seems to be saying that she's less deserving of sympathy from Australians because she wasn't an, aus- an outspoken regime critic. Um, is that how we're to understand this? Um, look, I've been, not necessarily, I've been covering the two Australians detained up in Beijing, the other one, Young Hong Jun. It appears to me there's far more interest in Chung Lei's case than there is in Young Hong Jun's case, primarily because Young Hong Jun's a guy who spent his career writing in Chinese about Chinese politics. Uh, the average Australian mm-hmm. can take zero interest, frankly, in, in his career. Chung Lei, um, her, because obviously there's, there's plenty of um, vision of her in English talking about her life and career in China. It's been splashed all over the media here. I'd say there's far more interest in her case than uh, the other Australian up, up in Beijing. Uh, in general, though, yes, I suppose that uh, people would say, well, we've never heard of this person because, of course, CGTN is not exactly uh, widely watched in Australia. Um, uh, you know, she has a Chinese name, born in China, works for Chinese state media. I suppose quite a few people in the community would just say, well, you know, if you're, if you're over in China and you're working for the Chinese government's uh, media operation, you know, what do you expect? That might be the attitude of some people. But I, even if there is that attitude out there, I don't think it, it affects the sincerity with which the Australian government or the Australian business community is trying to advocate for her. Let's hope that's the case. Um, I think it it speaks to a broader phenomenon, which is that, you know, now you do have a lot of foreigners who are working in one way or another for Chinese institutions, right? Um, Chinese companies, many Chinese companies have foreign employees, Chinese universities, uh, Chinese media, right? So what are are we going to do? Um, Are we going to say that those people automatically give up uh, the rights that they were accustomed to, um, you know, in their own home countries? Or are we going to say, on the other side, which is quite distasteful to the Chinese, that there's a certain extraterritoriality to foreigners working in China? And, you know, that is distasteful to Chinese because of, you know, the historic case of, um, you know, foreigners having special and different rights in China. Um, But I, I think more broadly, it speaks to the fact that China is trying to simultaneously globalize, you know, interact with the world community, employ foreign citizens, but at the same time, you have this very, very closed political system. You have a very closed legal system, and uh, you have very little recourse if you are unlucky enough to get tangled up in that. Don mm-hmm. Clark, Bill Bertels, and Lucy Hornby, thank you so much to all three of you for making time. Uh, let's move on now to the recommendation segment of the show. But first, I want to remind everyone very quickly that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like the work that we're doing with this show and the other shows in the network, like New Voices or the China in Africa podcast or the new China Stories podcast or Tech Buzz or Strangers in China or Middle Earth or China Quarter Office or any of our other shows, then remember, the best way to support us is by subscribing to the SupChina podcast newsletter. 
the excess newsletter. Go to subchina.com slash subscribe. And new subscribers get your first two months for just $2. On to recommendations. Let's begin with Lucy. What you got for us? Well, I've actually been really enjoying, um, there's something called the Revolutions Podcast, which is um, hosted by a guy named Mike Duncan. Yeah, um, that's great. Of course, I love it, that. D- it doesn't quite compare to um, to yours, Kaiser, but it's <laughs> very interesting. Um, he, he goes over uh, the history of various revolutions. And what I'm enjoying right now is he's had a very, very lengthy uh, dive into the Russian Revolution. Um, and so for those of us who are familiar with China, it's really interesting um, to see how communism and communism res- revolutionaries uh, came out of Marxism, found uh, ground in fertile soil in Russia, and how all that developed. Because, of course, that development historically in Russia then had a huge influence on contemporary China. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to understand the history of Russian communism if you if you are somebody who looks at China. I think people who 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 aren't intimately familiar. I mean, I was lucky. I started off doing Russia before I got really interested in China. That's that's where I started. So, yeah. I I can't agree. And that's a great podcast. Funny, I have a podcast to recommend as well, but I'll wait. Uh Don, you're up. Okay, well, I have uh, two books and a piece of software. So, uh, yeah, my my first book, going from the general to the specific, is, uh, I think, really one of the best books on Chinese law uh, that has come out in a long time, but it'll be of interest to people, you know, who are just interested in China. It's called The Construction of Guilt in China. Uh, It came out Mm. last year by a lecturer at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Her name is Yu Mo, M-O-U. And it's based on, you know, incredible numbers of interviews, you know, and fieldwork done with police and uh, prosecutors. So not just judges. We do have people who study judges and interview them, but this is with police and prosecutors. So she got incredible access and sort of she talks about how a criminal case is constructed. Uh, in China, what happens before it gets to the court, which is critical given that the conviction rate is over 99%. So everything important in a criminal case happens before it gets into court. And this is, you know, the book that really, really uh, you know, analyzes this again with lots of interviews. So it's not just, you know, high flown theory. It's lots of great anecdotes as well. Um, uh, the second book is this very interesting uh, biography of John Maynard Keynes, which just came out called The Price of Peace by a guy named Zachary Mm. Carter, which is interesting, of course, not just because of what it says about Keynes, but about, you know, the whole development of that kind of theory and and changes in how we think about, you know, what, you know, the role of government uh, in the economy. And finally, the the reason I want to recommend this piece of software, because nobody I know uses it, but it saves my life like almost every day. And it is a piece of software called X1. And uh, what it does is it indexes your hard drive, and it's a search software and it allows you to search in all kinds of ways it does boolean searching you can search by you know full text you can search by file name you can search by path name date file size file type anything so as long as you remember something a few words maybe little snippets of information about something that you saved on your computer 15 years ago you can find it uh, wow. And uh, I literally, I use it every day to find stuff. I can't remember where I put it on my computer, and it's tremendously useful. So X1, you have to pay for I, it. I hope but there's it's a Mac it. version of it. Yeah. I yeah. think you're a, you're a PC using uh, person yes. swimming in a sea of <laughs> Mac users, though. So that's probably why none of your peers talk about it. All right. So two books and a piece of software. Bill, what do you have for us? 
Uh, just one that would probably be of interest, Kaiser, to the Seneca audience. Uh, this um, uh, report that's uh, up on the website of the Lowy Institute, which is well known in Australia mm-hmm. as a foreign policy uh, think tanky type organisation. They've got this new research out called Being Chinese in Australia. Pretty comprehensive survey of, uh, of attitudes, of experiences of uh, the Chinese Australian community, which of course many people have been in caught in the, the crosshairs of this increasingly uh, intense debate about China and Australia. So it's full of all sorts of interesting um, tidbits, everything from attitudes uh, among people in the Chinese community to things like uh, democracy, to uh, levels of discrimination faced, particularly after the pandemic, right through to things like um, attitudes whether to whether or not the Australian media is too negative towards China and its coverage, uh, to how much they generally source their news from things like censored platforms like WeChat. So it's really fascinating, I think, for anybody who's been following the China-Australian debate. It's on the Lowy Institute website. Uh, Being Chinese in Australia is what it's called. That's fascinating. And I mean, it, it's, it always strikes me that there's this parallel world always, uh, Australia, China, US, China. There's always this temptation to kind of transpose anything that happens in Australia into the key of America. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm always warning people that they are not the same, that the power dynamic is very different, that, you know, the kinds of, of, of threats are very different. But at the same time, it's it's an irresistible thing to, to always, you know, look for sort of parallel experiences and and this that's happening right now especially the experience of chinese in australia uh, i think in many ways does very closely parallel the experience of chinese americans in the u.s uh it's during during this time i mean we see uh, a new survey that i just caught a glimpse of that it has you know american attitudes toward china at an all-time low and i'm sure that's the same right now in australia for for Chinese or for China. Yes, I noticed on that um, graph of American attitudes towards China, the current unfavorable ranking is lower than it was right after June 4th. Wow. So she is getting tired of all the winning, I guess. (laughs) I guess so. Um, Great. Thank you. Uh, An excellent recommendation. I'll check it out. Uh, I I like a lot of the stuff that the Lowy Institute puts out. Mine is another podcast, like I, I said. Uh, this is the British History Podcast. It's It's been going on for, what, 10 or 11 years now by a lawyer named Jamie Jeffers. Uh, if there's a such thing as really in-depth pop history, this is it. Uh, 10 years now, I guess 360-some episodes. He's managed to only go from the Neolithic only up to about the mid-11th century and not quite to the Battle of Hastings yet. I mean, not even to the Norman, you know, to the Norman invasion yet. I think he's at, like, about the year 1050, but it's just great, and I think it's only going to get better. The host has uh, not just a wonderful voice and really got nice narrative style that, that works, a lot of humor. Uh, so for your next long drive or your long flight, load up a bunch of these. Um, you have my pardon for not listening to a cynical product. Uh, enjoy this. It's really it's a, quite exemplary. I, I'm, I'm really hooked on it. Lucy Hornby, Donald Clark, Bill Bertel, it's great to have you all on. Uh, thank you so much. You've, I think, all brought a lot of uh, really valuable perspectives to this uh, from the journalistic standpoint, uh, the international relations standpoint, and, of course, from the legal standpoint. So thanks so much for joining, and uh, I hope to have you all back on the show not too long. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Kaiser. Thank you, Lucy. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. 
Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.